Welcome to The Well, a podcast about the spirited world of cocktails, the alcohol that's in them, and the bars that serve them. Of all the things we consume, the world of booze is perhaps the most riddled with misunderstandings, mysticism, and downright consumer confusion. Our aim is to make you a more mindful imbiber so you can live your best life. My name is Payman Vamani. I'm a lawyer turned bartender, and my co-host with the Comos is Rodney Sinocruz, a DJ and music engineer who is on the quest to drink more intelligently. Mike Cupperferry, could you introduce yourself? I'm Mike. I uh, am a I'm a industry lifer. I've been working in bars and restaurants really since my 14th birthday, and have done that for now 19 years. Of that's all I really know, and it's all I really love. And yeah, bartended for 12, 13 years. Spent the past four years as a the national brand ambassador for Campari's Italian portfolio. So Campari, Aperol, Braulio, Averna, Chinar. I think the most complete portfolio of Italian spirits out there. So um, did that, just left, and uh, opening a new bar in Los Angeles, Echo Park, called Thunderbolt. So look forward to that in the next month or two. Fingers cool. crossed. August. Sweet. And August we're sitting day. upstairs from Thunderbolt, actually. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, Park's finest. Yeah, can't, so can't wait you. for that to open. Yeah. Yeah, great partners of ours, Parks Finest, so uh, kind enough to let us use their space tonight, their air-conditioned, comfortable office, instead <laughs> of my filthy construction site next door. <laughs> so can you actually break down what is the Aperol Spritz? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. probably a yeah. good idea to, to talk about this drink, right? So the Aperol Spritz is uh, it's an old drink. This is not a new thing. It's, it's new to the U.S. and new to the media, I guess, and uh, people are still trying to wrap their heads around the Spritz because the Spritz is... I mean, it's a drink with a recipe, but it's really more about how it sort of uh, envelops this whole culture of the aperitivo in Italy and like how it's how it's become, how it's just sort of taken over Italy and and, and Western Europe, and then it's sort of just making its way here. So uh, the spritz is you'll read on the back of the bottle three very very simple ingredients: it's prosecco, it's aperol, and it's soda, sparkling water over ice in a wine glass with an orange wedge. Really, really, really simple drink. Really hard to fuck up. Like, they used to put a recipe on the back of the bottle, three parts Prosecco, two parts Aperol, and one splash of soda, but that was too complicated for okay. your average consumer, apparently, according to the Italians that run Campari. So now they just put Prosecco, Aperol, soda, because yeah. it's, it's that hard to fuck up. Yeah, make just, it, just make it how you want it. Get close to equal parts, to what get like, close yeah. to equal parts on the Prosecco and the Aperol and add a little soda. And, like, it's perfect. It's low ABV. Uh, it's... You know, daytime sessionable drinking. I mean, night's not a bad time for it either. But I think where in Italy, it sort of represents aperitivo culture, which is which is happy hour time. And happy hour there is people on their way home from work. You stop at a bar, you have some snacks, you have some low ABV drinks, you're drinking white wine, you're drinking spritzes, and then you make your way to dinner. You make your way home for the night. Here in the states, it's more like daytime day drinking brunch. Like it's sort of taken on a different life. Right. Um, it's not really a happy hour cocktail. I don't see it as much, unless you're one of the few bars in LA with a great patio. But like, uh, I think most of the US, it's really like become the the weekend day drinking. It feels drink. like an outdoor drink. Yeah, it me. feels like an outdoor drink. It tastes like summer, right? Yeah. So um, you know, it's. I think the reason it's it's really just starting to catch on here is, uh, you know, it's a relative. After all, itself is a relatively new product to the US. I mean, it's been around since 1919. It's the 100th anniversary of Aperol, so opportune time to do the podcast. But um, Spritz, spritz culture has been huge since the 50s in Italy, um, since people were making white wine spritzes up in the, the Veneto, up in, around Venice and Padua. But Aperol wasn't even imported to the U.S. until uh, 2006. So it's only been oh, here 13 wow. years. Campari bought it in 2003, imported 2006. So it's still 
And it was very small for those first few years when they were tr trying to figure out what to do with it, how to convince Americans to drink it. Why would you want to drink something that's only 11% alcohol, you know? And mm -hmm. so it's still just making its way and it's starting to grow exponentially and then things like this come out and it just... Explodes. So talk to us a little bit about the history of uh, the spritz itself. Is it something... Is, does the spritz predate the Aperol spritz or, or is the spritz uh, a company invention to begin with? Uh, so not a company invention, we don't think. I, it's one of those cocktails where like, the, the Campari as a company has decided on a story for the Negroni. We have an inventor and we have a, we have a namesake and we have a story, right? Aperol, we don't. And so what, what I taught for four years was like, you know, Aperol invented in 1919, really popular in the Veneto. Like, it, it, it was popular there. It didn't make it out of that region of Italy until the 50s. Austrian soldiers down over the border uh, in Italy still, um, after World War II, preferred lighter-style Austrian wines to the heavier Italian wines, so they were lengthening them, like adding, serving them over ice, adding a spritzen of soda, right, or of water, and that was sort of the start of the word spritz and the spritz culture. And so... Started in the Veneto, once people started, we don't know who the first genius was to add the local bitter at the time, but Aperol is like the most popular product from that region, right? Aperol is 1919, you had a Select Bitter come out the following year. Uh, you, I don't know if you've seen it around, it's in the market. A uh, little boozier than Aperol, it was a brand that went away for a long time and Montenegro bought it and is reviving it. Um, so it's out there, but they were 1920. Uh, but that's what people were using and Aperol by far dominated the spritz. Like once someone started adding local bitter product to these wine spritzes they were making, it just took off and it took over the rest of Italy and then Western Europe. And still, I mean, you go to Italy, any patio at four or 5 p.m. is flooded with spritzes. It's never one, you know, it's a sea, a sea of orange wine glasses. So we talked about, you know, the spritz as part of general aperitif culture in Italy. And, you know, the counterpart of that in the States being kind of like happy hour culture here. Yeah. Um, and we do a lot of day drinking. I guess it's kind of part of our like, I guess part of the weekend warrior kind of culture in America, you know, where we, we don't really get vacations, we get weekends, yeah. weekends you know? Um, and so as far as like Italian and European drinking culture, there is like this whole low ABV uh, thing that's like, they've been doing it for years, right? Whether yeah. it's you know, vermouths in Spain or, or what have you, you know, the low ABV thing is just catching on in the States, but, you know, over, overseas in Italy and other parts of Europe, they have that. I mean, when I worked in Cyprus, spritzes and especially the Aperol spritz was like quite a popular drink. And they're certainly not susceptible to the same commercial, you know, factors in the States, but like that was what you did in a Mediterranean environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you, you know, you want to drink, it's too hot to start the whiskey, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not that time yet. So what do you do? And, and that's, you know, putting together Aperol with some, you know, or that was really more, more commonly available it was a like Campari sodas, Aperol and, and, you know, Prosecco or whatever. It was a popular thing. Drinking is just the experience of like the conduit of hanging out with friends. You know, you're out, you know, you're out at a picnic or whatever, you're having a cold bud, you know, um, not everything needs, you know, to be the height of, to be the height of, of experience. So not everything needs to be like something meditative where it's like you sit down and like yeah. contemplate on the on the flavor profile of this thing. It's like maybe the focus in that situation is just the camaraderie of like hanging out with your friends. Yeah, yeah. and it also doesn't need to be a race to be 
hammered drunk, which is, that's, I think that's the big difference, right? It's like... Isn't that American drinking That's culture? what I mean. Like, that, that's Versus, the difference between yeah. drinking over there and drinking here. It's like, I, I know people get drunk in Italy. I'm sure they do. But I saw way fewer hammered people at a busy bar. I, I can't remember once seeing someone like, oh, that guy's twisted right now. Like, and every time I go to a busy bar in the U.S., someone's hammered. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's about happy hour here is buy one, get one free. It's, it's doubles. It's, you know, it's about discount drunkenness. Right. That is not the culture over there. Maybe that's why the, lunch, the lunchtime drinking Doesn't happen, culture yeah. died in the States, because it was like martinis. Yeah, the three you martini, know, three martini, martini lunch, right? lunch. It's like, <laughs> I still love, I love a three martini lunch. But, you but know, that's you, all I do that day. You can't get any work done. I'm unless, asleep after yeah. that. You know? Like yeah, people like, here, they haven't wrapped their head around, wait, this costs $12, $13, and it's got less alcohol in it? <laughs> like, it's starting to happen. Like, you see the Session IPA very popular, right? Like, people are people have embraced it with beer. It, well, but it's, it's beer like, people have. Yeah. Like, people love a 3% Goza now, you know what I mean? And I, I'm one of those people. I love it because I can have four of them, and it's fucking delicious and refreshing and tart, sour, and I'm not drunk, you know? Like, and I like that because I... I'm all I have shit to do now. I, I can't. I'm getting hammered in an af- on an afternoon. Like, I can't be drunk at 5 p.m. <laughs> My whole day's ruined the next day. So I, I don't know. I think people are starting to embrace it here. It's just a different culture over there. Drinks are more expensive at happy hour than they are at night because they come with food. You know, you go to an aperitivo hour there, and it's like you're paying more per drink, but then you have this like spread, spread of food. Right. So everyone's eating also. So like. You know, people are drinking lower ABV and they're eating, and like people aren't getting hammered at a Peritivo hour. It's like a, do, it's do a cool down. Bars like that here, because I I do remember going to one in Oakland like that, Italian style bar, and during their happy hour, yeah, they had a spread of food that was all free. Like if you're there drinking, you're yeah. snacking also. You remember, all I remember in in Oakland, you said? In the Oakland, only yeah. close to that is like in New York. There's that one bar that like you get a free slice of crappy pizza with <laughs> every beer you drink. As far as like you know. When you were working for a brand, when you were working for Campari, basically, did you, you know, obviously, you know, it helps to like what you're working for. And I think a lot of brand ambassadors do like, and that, you know, so it's not, it's not a difficult sell. You know, you're not a used car salesman trying to sell, trying to dump a, you know, a lemon yeah. on somebody's lap. Um, but did you find yourself, you know, how, how did, what did you feel was your role in terms of like, Yes, you're working for the brand, but your your role in terms of educating was there was there an educational component that you felt you had a, an obligation for, or was it, you know, what what did you see your role uh, outside of just pushing the brand? Yeah, so I got I got super fortunate. I was not looking for a brand job. I had never considered working for a brand. I was happy in operations, and then someone recommended me, and I got this phone call, and I saw the portfolio, and I was like, holy shit! I didn't even know Campari had purchased. Of Aaron and Braulio at that point because that happened in 2014 and I got hired in like March of 2015 I think they were like what do we do with this amazing Italian portfolio and uh, they'd never had brand ambassadors before really I mean they'd worked with people on Sky a little bit but they hired four of us at first so they hired four regions they hired Boston, New York uh, LA and Chicago and we just kind of figured it out and so because we weren't taking over an existing job because Campari, this was all new to Campari we sort of got to create our roles and they hired a bunch of nerds so we all decided this was going to be a educational role. And so um, the program ended up changing and there ended up being two of us and then just one of me and then they replaced the other one. So there's, there's still a uh, uh, East Coast brand ambassador now. 
But I mean, it was, I would say 90% of my job was educational and it was what I loved the most. And it's why it was like super difficult to leave. You know, there were no training decks. There were no, there was nothing. We did all the research ourselves. We put all the trainings together. It was, it was so fun to build, to build the, the curriculum and build the syllabus for these brands. So, you know, it was, it was mostly training the trade. It was almost all talking to bartenders about the history, the production methods, you know, doing digging on my own to figure out how these things are made because Campari won't tell you <laughs> it's a secret, you know? So, and then just going out and teaching it until Campari was finally like, oh yeah, you can tell them that. Um, it was a little bit like, someone's going to be mad at me for this for a while, you know? And then it was also training the distributor and training Campari's in-house salespeople. So it was almost all educational. And the rest was events, throwing parties, hosting dinners, you know, pool parties, all the all the stuff you see on Instagram. You never see the trainings on Instagram. You always see what are the, the trainings like you go, to, you go to bars off hours and yeah, pull so the staff. It'll be it'll be anything from like fifteen minutes before a shift to a two hour like make your own Amaro seminar where we bring twenty five botanicals. I'll bring twenty five yeah. botanicals in. We'll do like a show and tell. People break into groups. They make like an instant Amaro is what we would call it. We'll taste through our portfolio. We'll compare styles. We'll talk, and it's like a two hour event. We spoke about your you know, your former role, um, you know, working for Campari and the brands. We're going to switch from that to what you're working on now. We touched, we you know, mentioned it briefly, yeah. you know, the Bar Thunderbolt, but, you know, I want to hear more about it because I'm actually going to be your neighbor. Can't wait. Um, Very excited. I can't wait. So, so you know, tell us what you want people to know, especially for anybody who lives in L.A. Great. or is going to be visiting in L.A. in the next couple months. What's this yeah, bar all here's, about? Here's my elevator pitch on Thunderbolt. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, okay, so... I'm from the South, from Atlanta. And what I miss most about the food and beverage scene in Atlanta, I mean, I miss the food, but uh, it's a different breed of hospitality down there. That's really what I want to create here. It's just that, that feel of Southern hospitality. I think uh, LA gets a pretty bad rap for some pretty flippant and just, you know, not excellent service. Um, I think they're, I, I will be the first to tell you, you can get amazing service in LA. There are amazing bars and restaurants here, but it's a different style of hospitality. So we really just want to open a bar that makes people feel like they're in our home. So we we are going to skew a little southern. It's not going to be like kitschy, total southern place that just does fried chicken. We're gonna we're gonna do some more modern takes on southern foods. Definitely going to be a bar, uh, but with some great snacks and uh, you know a a pretty advanced cocktail program, but not advanced. No advancements that you'll ever see. Like it's all very approachable, very quick service, very affordable for the neighborhood that we're coming to. And uh, no, no pretentious. You mean like advancements will be like behind the scenes and prep? So yeah, like without getting too nerdy into it, like any sort of science or, or techniques that are going in that are sort of avant-garde are done behind the scenes in the prep phase. And it's not in order to sell something that is going to like be a magic show and cost twenty dollars. It's in order to sell drinks in seventy-five seconds or less and charge twelve, thirteen dollars max. So we're trying to keep it affordable, consistent, fast service. We want to be high volume. So it's all about it's all about turning out a, a exemplary quality product faster and more affordably. And because that's that's part of hospitality, right? That's part of that style of hospitality I'm talking about is that it's informal, it's welcoming, it's like it's quick, it's easy, it's approachable. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Where's the name Thunderbolt? From? I was just going to ask. That's a great, great, great cue. Thank I love you. the name. Uh, okay, the so yeah. the name Thunderbolt uh, is actually a reference to sort of a, 
uh, unsung hero classic cocktail that never got its got its fame, its deserved fame. I think it's from my favorite cocktail book, uh, The Gentleman's Companion Around the World with Jigger Beaker and Glass by Charles Baker. I'm sure I'm sure you've read that book. Like, I've read that book, like, but the but the the drink doesn't come to mind. Tell, okay, tell, so tell, tell us about it. It's buried deep in there. So it is uh, Charles Baker, like you know, the life we all want to live, traveled around. Uh, First the U.S. and then South America for a second book. I think he was like a writer for Esquire or GQ. Yeah, yeah in like in the twenties, yeah. tw- right? Yeah, twenties, thirties, okay. and, and was writing about paid drinks. to go drink. Yeah, so like in the, sorry to interject, no, real quick, but in the classic pantheon, uh, in the pantheon of like classic cocktails and and old drinks from old books, the drinks from his book are the most out there. Separ- separate from tiki, they're like the classic, form- formulaically classic, but like. You know, using ingredients that like you didn't think people well, were using. He was out there finding them. You know what I mean? Like, funny, he wasn't yeah, just like, at home making up know, these cocktails. He was going drinks with like cayenne pepper on top, which you don't see in any classic cocktail books. You think that's more of a modern thing, you know, like the Holland razor blade and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, he was out finding what people were doing, not creating God. drinks. So he yeah. was traveling around. He was so digging in the crates. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> so well, this will tell you how far he dug. He was like forty five minutes outside of Savannah, Georgia, in a town called Thunderbolt, Georgia. Uh, and he had a julep variation there called the Peach Thunderbolt. So that is basically, at the time, it was uh, aged Bacardi when Bacardi was made in Cuba. Uh, so aged Cuban rum, Georgia peaches and mint served on crushed ice like a mint julep. And so rum-based mint julep with Georgia peach that will be our uh, sort of signature cocktail. Yes. And that's where the name comes from. And so it's like... Uh, it's an ode to your... To your yeah, it's, a, it's cool because that name makes you think... That sounds delicious. Big, bold, scary, but it's like such a delicate, wonderful, light drink. It's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty excellent. So, can't yeah. wait to have that. Um, as far as the other drinks, will they also be southern inflected? There's, there's little bits here and there. There's some southern inflection. There's uh, a lot of Filipino town influence because um, we're in historic Filipino town, or at least on the border of it. And uh, you know, we're gonna. There's gonna be some odes there. I think the menu will probably be pretty fluid anyway. I'm not married to anything. I don't want to be so overt with southernness, like. Right. I, I've said this a million times, it's like a fucking broken record, but like the most southern thing in the place will be the style of hospitality. It's not going right. to feel like you're at a fried chicken restaurant or a southern restaurant. It's just going to be a, a pretty Paul comfortable... Dean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no like wagon wheels on the wall, you know? It's like, it's going to just be a comfortable neighborhood bar that happens to serve great bar snacky southern food and cocktails. That was Mike Capaferi dropping knowledge on the history of the Aperol Spritz and Italian aperitivo culture. Now, you wouldn't think the Aperol Spritz would be cause for controversy, but in May, the New York Times published an article titled, The Aperol Spritz is Not a Good Drink, and the bartending corner of the internet was on fire. While we'll leave it up to you to debate the merits of the drink, the article did get us thinking about the role of the media and the role of bartenders as they relate to consumers. So we're at the Black Cat in Silver Lake. It's my neighborhood, my neighborhood spot, you know, one of my, one of my go-tos. Um, this is my Regal Beagle if you will, you know. I mean, maybe nobody, none of our audience got this, unless our audience is like 40 plus. 40 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we're at the Black Cat, and uh, we have with us Liam Bear, a good friend of mine and, and a, a bartender who's uh, from the East Coast originally. You've worked overseas, worked internationally and, and all over Asia. We actually met while we were working in Asia. And now you're setting up roots in LA. So welcome. Thanks, man. Good to good to be here. Good to have you. You and I, we get into it a lot <laughs> about all sorts of issues yeah. um, dealing with 
bartenders, the bar industry, it comes cocktails. From a good place. It co- well, we get into it because we're both passionate, and that's why I wanted you on this uh, on this show about this topic is because you care. You know, some bartenders after a while, like we get kind of jaded, and, and you still have that passion for it, uh, even though you hate the rest of life. <laughs> things are things are okay. Yeah. <laughs> Looking up. Uh, we're talking about this New York Times article about the Aperol spritz, and just wanted to get your thoughts on that article. You, I know you've read it. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky article because it doesn't really the context of the article isn't that. It's not. It doesn't say like this is a bad drink. You shouldn't order it. I think it's more of a call for bartenders to take a look at it and like really contemplate and be mindful of how you're making the drink and what you're putting in the drink. Speaking of the um, drink, yeah, there yeah, we go. We have arrived. Cheers, hands. Yeah, cheers. Um, yeah, I think it, like I think a lot of people just went right to the headline. You know, got super upset, reposted it without really even reading the full article. Interesting. So you like you you. You're okay with the article. I'm not okay with the article okay. because it's, it comes off as clickbait, and I would expect the New York Times to be, you know, above uh, that type of article. But even if the title were different, you, you're okay with the content? Yeah, I'm okay with the content because if you read it closely, it's not saying that the Aperol Spritz should go away or, you know, it is... Does. No, it does. No, I think that. it says... I mean, it, it, I think it, it more... Along says, you know, you should really rework how you're making this drink. Like it goes, it's there's one part where it says, hey, instead of prosecco, why not try a pet net? Which is smart, I think. I think that's. See, I have an issue with that. Why is that? I have an issue with that. It's okay. not the classic. No, 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 forget. Not even classic stuff. Getting away from from Canon and all that. Um, you know, I love a pet net, and I am a firm believer of using the best ingredients. Uh, you can find in making a cocktail if you can afford it, right? Sure. Uh, you know, that better whiskey or better, you know, rum or whatever will make for a better cocktail. In the end, if all, you know, if all the other ingredients are also quality. I'm a firm believer in that. You know, it was, you know, it's not until you try, you know, a 30-year-old uh, cognac in a sidecar <laughs> yeah. do you really appreciate that, you know, that idea. Yeah. So I'm down with that. But if this is going to be an, uh, an article of national scope, and maybe let's just keep it national, you know, there's a lot of people in this, in, in, in like cities that just maybe don't know what that is, don't have access to that. And so for me, the article came off as um, a little bit arrogance, you know, because yeah, I, and it's one thing to say like use use a better some use a good prosecco or maybe use champagne or something. It's a whole other thing, like, and you know, the Aperol is a little bit too sweet, and it, and and it's uh, it's it wasn't even saying that the Aperol is too sweet. It's like Aperol is a little bit basic. It's like a Capri Sun, and you should actually go with Capaletti, or you should go with this other more advanced Amaro. All of which I like. I love those Amari, but if you wander into the territory of saying this particular ingredient is basic. Aren't you making an implication that that drinker is basic? And, and aren't those drinkers, like, maybe they might be on a level that's more intermediate or in, introductory than, than maybe we are? Or maybe the writer is? You know what I'm saying? And yeah, so like, no, I, it, it just comes off as, like, it's, to me, it's 
very much like the Long Island iced tea conversation. Back when bartenders like ourselves, you and I, would roll our eyes maybe when a bar when oh, somebody I don't would know if I could if I would compare it to that. It's it is it is the equivalent, no? No, because I don't necessarily it's not saying that the Aperol Spritz is like a basic drink that you should get like when you're at you know a particular venue and not at uh, you know a upscale cocktail bar or whatever. Um, it's saying don't get that at all. Instead, no, I don't. Should, I don't really see that. In the, in, no, I don't. I don't really see that. I just. I think it's. You're seeing it. That article is one end of the spectrum. Of course, like not everybody has access to Patnat. Not everybody knows what Patnat is. I think that's like the extreme, like end of the spectrum. Um, but that's what was in the article, too. Right. But I think you know? it's like if you have that, that would be great. But if you don't, think about the sweetness of the apérol. Think about the carbonation. Of your of your prosecco, your champagne, your 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 you know sparkling wine, See, I guess whatever I you want to use, um, and just I, be more mindful about it. Because half the time, you know, the, the bartender will just be like, oh, oh yeah, we can make that, and just throw some unopened, you know, or sorry, some opened champagne that's probably been sitting in the well for like who knows how long, and a fucking half can of of uh, Schweppes that's been there just just as long, if not longer, and just throws it in without any sort of like thought to like ratios or, or mindfulness in terms of like uh, carbonation or, 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 or balance or anything like that. And go ahead. No, sorry. I, and I and it, say, it's I, just like, I see that article as a more of like, hey, cut the shit. This is actually a drink that has a lot of history uh, when made properly is actually quite I delicious. That from the article. I think you're being... Maybe I, I'm I being too forgiving. I agree with I don't the things know. you're saying. I agree with everything you're saying. I just don't agree that they're found in the article. Mm. Uh, you may be having an interpretation, and maybe I ought to do another. another yeah, I would reread it. Another look at it. Um, it seems like you have. I think like you agree with the content. You don't agree with the tone. Is that is that what uh, I'm getting? This is what I would. This is how I would. If I could do the article, this is what I would write. If you like the Aperol Spritz, consider these things if they're available in your market. You know, and it, it's okay to be snarky and all that stuff. Like, I'm not saying, you know, don't be sarcastic or whatever. That's all cool. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is it comes off very similar to when us as bartenders got a bad rap because many of us, because we were so new and so to this cocktail thing, so excited about craft cocktails that we ended up taking hospitality, ended up taking the backseat, and we ended up taking sure. the tone that was a bit demeaning to guests simply because they were more or less less knowledgeable than us about the wonderful world of Amari or the depth of mezcal and like, oh you don't drink mezcal oh you must be a basic you know <laughs> and I still think that of a lot of people but I now think it with my inside yeah, voice, yeah, inside voice. <laughs> you know? what would be an elevated spritz that we could order for our second drink that would that would be worthy of the New York Times. And that's a good question. It would really depend on what they have in, in stock. I mean, I'll answer that. The answer is in the article. Just the idea that put a different tomorrow, try something else with maybe a different flavor profile. Doesn't have to necessarily be more complex. I don't necessarily believe some people don't want more bitter or you know some people just want the same but same same but different. You know. And I just say swap it out for something else with a flavor profile that you like. Be willing to experiment and. Same goes for your wine. Try a combination of, I like some sherry and an Amaro, a dry sherry Amaro and some soda water. Yeah. You know, experiment. And the Aperol Spritz and these, and Spritzes in general are so forgiving 
which is maybe why so many fell by the wayside as far as why you know a tourist uh, touristy places in Italy or just bartenders that didn't know what they're doing but didn't care they just throw a bunch of stuff together the people who were drinking didn't care because they were more into the, they're in Italy they're on vacay yeah, yeah they don't give a uh, like, yeah. so, like drinking a pina colada on, but it's also like a very springs. forgiving drink right like the, the Manhattan doesn't get that same level of forgiving yeah. leeway, right. leeway so no. you can do that you can you know put a little bit more put a little bit less as you like um, the Americano I love it's it's yeah. I would call that a spritz. I mean sure. it's Shapari, sure. sweet vermouth, and yeah, club soda. Equal parts or however much however way you like it. Is that definitely a, a more I guess advanced for lack of a better word alternative to the to the Aperol spritz. Definitely get a little bit more bitterness, uh, less forgiving uh, in terms of carbonation because you know you're adding more of you know another ingredient rather just making one ingredient the, yeah. the star. So as I read the article, the other thing it got me thinking about is what role does the media have um, as far as, you know, something as relatively benign as talking about cocktails and spirits, you know, what, what should the tone and stuff be? <laughs> I don't think um, the media has any role in bartending, to be honest with you. No, not in bartending, but as far as, you like know, in, I mean, the, the reason why I want to bring this up is because I think one of the main reasons you and I started this podcast, Rodney, was... We both felt that with regard to spirits and cocktails, there wasn't a whole lot of verifiable sources of information. Mm-hmm. Much of it was coming from brands. Brands pass on that information to the PR companies. PR companies pass it on to the media. The media regurgitates it and generally spits it back out to the consumer. And then the consumer buys the stuff. Yeah. And it just becomes this, this uh, feedback loop where Unless you have independent voices, which there aren't many, you pretty much have like this, this feedback loop, right? Where, where there's nobody really learning what something is. I look at it like, what role, what responsibility do they have? Do, should they just be telling people, oh yeah, this is shit, don't drink this, drink that? To me, that seems a, a bit, it seems like what a blogger would do. Not something I'd expect of a revered news agency. Like you said, it's clickbait. You yeah. Know? I mean, unfortunately, I would like, in my experience, 95% of the stuff that comes out from the media that you know, highlights our industry, alcohol, whatever, is pretty much garbage. Like, you know, like I don't. That's why I'm saying, like, I don't know if the media has any place in this uh, industry, well, like, because it's it's, you're it's saying they shouldn't have a place, or they just have have completely absconded unless, that role. Unless it's a, a a media outlet that is 100% focused on alcohol, is unbiased, but I don't even know if that exists. Maybe maybe imbibe, you know, but. I mean, even they have... They rely on sponsors. Yeah, they rely on sponsors. You know, I agree with you that maybe the state of things is not so so great, but is that an argument for no responsibility at all? I just... I, like, I, it's just too often times where you see the people who are, are writing these articles are have no experience behind the bar... Uh, or you know, like such as this article, such as this <laughs> article, <laughs> right? From a bartender's perspective, in dealing with a drink that I brought up, like the Long Island Iced Tea, um, 
and this will probably segue into what I think a bartender's role is, you know, is I wouldn't tell, if a guest would order Long Island, I no longer think anything. No. I, I just, I so gladly I make them the drink with, with, as best I can. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if they want another round, if I've done this, if I've done right by them, then I'll offer something else. And that's is that, really... Is that the role of the bartender to... to well, that's the question, so I'll pose that to you. Well, you know, Long Island iced tea is, I mean... Or whatever. It's not like... But what's the role of the bartender with relation to the consumer? Uh, I mean, really depends on the situation. I don't think you could just answer that, you know, without any sort of context. Like, um, I mean, I, I, generally, the, the role of the bartender, yeah, like, is to take care of the guest needs. Yeah. And without any sort of... Um, any sort of backlash or not backlash but uh, any sort of hesitation or you know condescending you know attitude or what have you it's just this is what you want if I have it you got it you know yeah I generally I think I take the same tack which is you know bartenders play a funny middle ground role between what chefs do and what servers do and I'm not and hosts, trying to like it's, yeah. it's I'm not trying to compare bartenders to chefs as far as level of no. of knowledge and years of, of, of study. Just as far as function, chefs create things that will that will be cons- you know chefs create things that the guests will consume. Yeah, but the chefs don't serve them for the most part. Right. They don't take the orders and any of that stuff. They're not worried about you know making sure they got the the, the, the plates and the and and they're service wear and you know napkins and all that pouring waters all that bartenders create things but they're also worried about all the stuff that a server has to do for the people that are at the bar so they, they play the hybrid role yeah yeah and so, not only that but your ego is like right on the line because if that guest doesn't like the thing that you them. made yeah. them yeah. Exactly. it's like right there it's not like you're safe and you know hospitality, tour in the kitchen. hospitality is essential to what you do where hospitality not only is it not essential to what chefs do when chefs, in my experience, when chefs try to serve something or when they're at a chef counter, they fucking blow it because they suck. Yeah. Because all their training has been to, you know, make sure they are revered as the artist. And bartenders got in a little bit of trouble with, with doing that when the craft cocktail thing really started. And there was a backlash yeah. and we realized hospitality is really... It's the um, core of our. It's the core of what we do. So, Chan, you know, I think I agree with what you said. Your primary objective is, is I think, as a bartender, to meet or exceed the expectation of the people uh, that have when they're entering there, right? Provide hospitality. If you know, and if you're a bartender at a sports bar, their expectation is a bit different and is calibrated differently than if you're at some fancy cocktail bar, right? You got to meet or exceed those expectations. Beyond that. If somebody's asking you, hey, you know, so this thing that's, what is this orange thing that's in my drink? Aperol. What is Aperol? And that questions come up quite frequently. Yeah. I will gladly answer that question. Well, that's teaching. I don't, I, you said there, it's not our responsibility to teach. It's not I, our primary responsibility. It's not a primary responsibility, but it definitely. I think only when asked. Yeah. Or only when the door is open. Sure. You know, yeah. that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah. So, Liam, let me ask you this. If the Aperol spritz were a song, what song would that be? I'm gonna say "Tainted Love." Tainted Love. Tainted Love. Yeah. Flipping um, it. 
But yeah, I went uh, with something, I think we talked about this earlier, and um, I, I said something else, but I'm gonna say Tainted Love, just because <laughs> it makes a better podcast title, <laughs> for one, and uh, it's a great song. It's, uh, you know, came out originally in 1965 by, uh, I'm blanking on her last name, but Gloria something. Gloria Stefan. No, it wasn't, uh, that was... <laughs> Gloria Swanson. <laughs> it was like Gloria Glass or, Gloria, or something, but Gloria, a lot of people I don't even know about that version. That so um, Tainted Love. Yeah, Tainted Love, originally released in 1965. Not a lot of people know about that because the, I think the song that's most popular, the, the version that's most popular, rather, is the cover from uh, Soft Cell in 1981. So like the, like the Aperol Spritz, it originally came out a while back and people started covering it and there's a, a lot of, of great covers, including the Soft Cell one, which most people know and there's a lot of really shitty covers too like the <laughs> Marilyn Manson versions. cover that's freaking makes me want to shove hot knives into my ears but um, yeah <laughs> I think like you know the Aperol Spritz when it's made right it, it's a beautiful drink but unfortunately it's not made right most of the time like uh, it's just a drink where you know people are like throwing three things in a glass and you know doing the the wiping the hands thing and then giving it to the guests. He was making a wipe um, with the hands. Yeah, you can't see that on the radio, but... I thought you just clapped yeah, it for yourself. Was like, what a great performance. I'm, I'm also, you know, a little bit of A and B. Uh, what? A little bit of A and B, you know, <laughs> clapping. Good job, Liam. So you're going to have to find out the artist, because uh, I'm curious yeah, now. it's Gloria. To Let's look this up. Gloria Jones. Gloria Jones. 1965. Jones. Did, Did you Jones? say Jones? You might have said Jones. The famous cover that most people know is 1981. All right. One hit wonder. Thanks Soft for cell. turning us on to that. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on the Thanks podcast. Thanks for turning me on in general. <laughs> <laughs>